theyeshiva.net. Good morning, Simon Jacobson, my dear and beloved brother, Y.Y. Jacobson, Yosef Yitzhak Jacobson. Um, I'm the oldest in the family, he's the youngest, and we have uh, three siblings sandwiched in between, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, and it's a pleasure to be here together. Uh, we spoke briefly a little about the structure and format here, and we'll get straight to it, so no need for long introductions. You've already heard us independently, and now we'll be here together. So what we'd like to do to really maximize the time in the fullest way, instead of talking about one thing at length, rather talk about many things, and um, as much as possible, and also engage with you, the audience. So what we're going to do is we're going to begin with a few questions that uh, we'll ask each other. And try to stick to, not try, to absolutely stick to uh, short answers. And short doesn't mean 45 minutes, which is short, by the way, in, 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 uh, relatively speaking. Um, but rather, uh, maybe two minutes. And, uh, and then, be happy to take questions from all of you. And uh, hopefully, this will be a very meaningful and enriching session for all of us. Want to start right away? You want to say something? You want yeah. to start with a question? I'll start with a question to my esteemed brother. If, uh, if you were given the opportunity to uh, change one thing in the system of all Jewish schools and education from grade one, from pre-1A, what would it be? You stumped me. <laughs> um... It's an excellent question. One thing would be a complete radical shift on the focus. That instead of focusing on uh, data, knowledge, and information, I'm talking about Jewish information, to focus on soul, on the Shema, on why we're here. God sent us for a purpose that your entire life, whatever you'll do, is going to be driven by that purpose. You have something unique to contribute that you and no one else can contribute. And we as parents and educators are here to help you do that. I, I'll just explain why I think this is the single most important, because if children from youngest of age know that, and it's inculcated, it's like integrated, it's part of their wiring, and they really sense it, it creates confidence and security and uh, really all the foundations necessary to be successful and excel in anything you do. In addition to, of course, instead of fighting all the demons and the negative stuff in life, being able to focus on what light you're bringing to this world. Because if you really measure, most people, I don't know the exact numbers, are really more busy with fighting evil, or fighting demons, I should say, than really spreading light. And this would be a big preemptive element to that. Obviously, there's no guarantees, but that would be a soul-based education, not just education as in schooling, but 24-7, constantly reinforcing and, re and encouraging and helping us build the courage to be you, who you are, express your voice, sing your song. Is my brother smart or what? 
You see why I married into the family? <laughs> okay, that was a minute answer. Good. Gavaldic. History for Jacobson. Yeah. Let's see if I can emulate him. <laughs> so my question to you, my dear brother, my beloved brother, um, I have to just say one thing. When he was a little child, when he was born, it's 1972, he was the cutest... Uh, Human being I ever saw. No, I and mean, when did that a, change? <laughs> there we go. When I lost my innocence. <laughs> um, no, it never changed, but you know, a, a newborn's a newborn. And for me, it was like I was 15 years old. It was like a soul that came in. I first, for the first time, appreciated a life. And I have to just say, uh, it's never changed, to be honest. But he doesn't let me embrace him as I did then. The dimples have been eclipsed by the beard, huh? <laughs> yeah. If you look at his kids, you can see uh, a little taste of it. So my question to you is, since um, so much has been talked about Hasidic thought, and the Hasidism, we both grew up in that community, the Rebbe, and who's the seventh in the line of Rebbes, all starting back from the Baal Shem Tov, what would you think would be the, the contribution that Hasidus in general, and maybe specifically in our generation, has contributed to Judaism and to the human race. Wow. Okay, one minute. <laughs> I would say, uh, offhand, I would say three major points or three major themes. Number one, the absolute and radical faith in the oneness, in the oneness of the universe. God is one in Hasidic teachings means not God is one, but that everything is part of the divine. That means we're all connected. It means we're all children of God. It means we all can be here for each other. It means we're responsible for the world. It means that physics, science, biology, cosmology, mathematics, psychology, spirituality, Jewish law, and Judaism are all one because it's all part of divinity. I think that is one uh, major theme. Another major theme is that the relationship between God and the Jewish people, and God generally and humanity, is one that is rooted in deep love and unconditional love. Sometimes Judaism becomes a focus on contracts. It's like we have a contract with God, and we lose the essential and deep powerful love. And I think a third component is the universal and big picture, that our mission is really to transform the whole world, like we say in Aleinu, L'sakin Oilam. And those visions that the Baal Shem Tov and the students articulated, I think are the most powerful and relevant to this very day and urgent today more than ever. What do you think? Excellent. Uh, my dear brother, what was the most memorable and moving experience in your life? Or one of the most memorable and moving experiences in your life besides marrying Shandy? There we go. Um, or besides me being born, of course. <laughs> there we go, too. Um... It's a great question from in, in any situation. Love I mean, one that, would, one that would relate, I think, to the audience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
How many of you were here Wednesday night when the, we had the session? I spoke about the mission, the Rebbe's contribution. Were you here Wednesday night? But not most of you, right? Okay. Not that I'm not going to repeat it. I just wanted to know for context. Um, as, as a young man, like all of us as young people, when we begin to search and seek and try to understand ourselves and our role in this world and why we're here, and I was no different struggling with that. So though there are many memorable moments that I could identify, but I believe probably that crossroad where you move from uh, adolescence to maturity to being, uh, at least in your own mind, somewhat of an adult and really making a decision that will affect the rest of your life. So to me, it was those definitive moments that I would say most memorable. I'm only saying that because, as I said, in context, I could share many different experiences. So let me just share what that was for me. I was uh, uh, internally, you know, 14, 15 years old, like most kids, was not necessarily a very good student. I was bored in school. I saw a lot of mediocrity and a lot of um, complacency. There were many good people in my life, and just for full disclosure, I was not abused nor hurt. So it wasn't like I was angry or bitter. On the contrary, like I used to always tell my friends when we used to talk, I said, I was never disappointed because I never expected anything. You know? <laughs> so others expected and they got hurt. I, I, my, my situation was the exact opposite. I was looking for something. And I didn't have the words for it at that time. You know, I think I mentioned the expression, rebel without a cause, in retrospect. So that epiphany... Which happened, and I can give you the dates even. It was on the 10th of Shvat in 1974, and it was on the second day of Shvuas in 1975. That had a traumatic impact on me, because I came to recognize a certain truth that would never leave me. And I must say, it wasn't a truth that was not inside, it was resonating. And it was in the presence of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who was that type of compelling personality, who spoke straight to the soul, at, until that point, I must say, he was a presence, but I didn't appreciate it. But it was in the right time, the right place. And I can tell you, I'll talk about the, sec- the tenth day of Shvat. That was a very, I'm sorry, the second day of Shvuat. And the Rebbe was talking about the contribution and the, the revelation at Sinai, which happens on Shvuat. What, what happened? What, why was it so dramatic? I mean, God gave us the Ten Commandments, the mandate called the Torah. Um, what was so dramatic was because a window, a door opened up between heaven and earth that for the first time ever, the human race, the mortal, flawed, limited human being can transform matter into spirit, matter into energy. And I have to tell you, this is my own personal experience. It was at the right time, as I said, the right place. I felt in my heart and in my soul, my entire being, I could almost see it. How the Rebbe was describing, like you look at a table, it just looks like a table. But it's really pulsating with energy, waiting to be released. So if you use the table for a good thing, to study, to spend time with family. And the same thing with an apple that you put into your mouth and you use it for proper, productive and constructive ends you have transformed that matter forever. And I saw it with my own eyes. I felt it. 
And it was like such a, uh, a powerful experience because I never looked at the world in the same way again, to be honest. I started seeing people and events and experiences and encounters and places I went to in that light that it's all potential energy waiting to be released. Not, never, it's never what you see is never what you get. I could elaborate more, but trying to keep it limited, that was a moment that really changed my perspective. Now, of course, it was accumulative, and till this day, this is how I see uh, everything. I would ask you the same question. No, really, it's a good question. Memorable. Um. I'll talk about one memorable experience that I had with uh, with the Rebbe as well, which left, I think, a very deep impact on me, and I think it was a guide for life. It was 1985, Simchas Torah, 1986, Simchas Torah. That night, the Mets won, I think the first time in 26 years or something. I mean, those who know this will correct me, but it was approximately then. And it was Simchas Torah at night. The news arrived around 10 o'clock to 7.70 that the Mets won. And there were a lot of fans. The Lubavitcher Rebbe would have a fabrengen, a gathering, before the hakafot on Simchas Torah, before the dancing. This was 1986. And I still remember while he was talking, somebody in the back, I even remember who it was, He's a big shliach today. And he gave a scream. The Mets won. He was so excited. It meant life. It was like the Messiah has arrived for him. Because <laughs> the Mets won. Uh, the Rebbe, however, was in a different world. And he spoke about one thing that I'll never forget. He analyzed the last Rashi. The last commentary of Rashi on the whole Chumash. On the whole Torah. The end of the Torah speaks about the death of Moses. The Torah eulogizes Moses and says there was never a prophet like him. There was never a man like him who knew God face to face. And it goes through everything he accomplished in his life. The exodus of Egypt, the splitting of the sea, the ten plagues, the giving of the Torah, the miracles in the desert. But what's the last eulogy? What's the last comment the Torah makes about Moses? The last words, kal Yisrael. Rashi says that Moses broke the tablets. And the Rebbe said, I don't understand. That was the most catastrophic tragedy in his life. That's like the pinnacle of all the eulogies. It's like you talk about a surgeon, 50 years, he saved 20,000 lives. But the greatest thing is that he killed one of his patients. I mean, where he managed to amputate both of his arms and legs. It may have happened, but it's not like the pinnacle. The Rebbe then saw, he broke down sobbing, you remember, like I never saw before or after. He was sobbing literally like a baby when he gave his answer. It took maybe a half an hour, a little longer, but to summarize it in 30, 40 seconds, Moses broke the tablets, he said, for one reason, to save the Jews, because the tablets were the marriage contract between God and the Jewish people, and the Jews, so to speak, betrayed the marriage. So Moses broke the marriage contract, basically saying that the Jews are not really, you know, they're still not married to you. There's no contract. There's no ksuva to prove it. So there's still, you know, uh, bachelors running around looking for some happiness until they figure out who they have to commit. 
And the Rebbe said the greatest quality of Moshe, of Moses, was that he took the most priceless item in the world. What's the most priceless item in the world? The tablets that were carved out by God. And Moses' deepest commitment was to Torah, to Hashem. And yet, when he had to choose between God, the Torah, and the Jewish people, what did he do? He broke the most precious divine item to save the Jewish people. He said, that's what a shepherd is. The Rebbe sobbed uncontrollably. And anybody who was there, including myself, it was such a transformative moment how to learn Torah, how to understand what Jewish leadership is, how to understand who Moses was, how to understand who the Rebbe was, and most importantly, to understand that if Torah and God does not lead you to the love of the Jewish people and the love of humanity, then you're barking up the wrong tree and you got the wrong Torah. So we're going to take the audience questions from the audience. We'll just uh, choose. And, uh, and um, if you want to direct it to either one of us, or one of us, or either, either way you like, we'll go with that. So uh, go ahead. The question was a double question, that once you begin to um, teach and write Torah, Hasidus, and it becomes your job, your profession, how do you not get jaded by that? And secondly, what was the second half of that? Yeah. Oh, right. Deal with your own personal. Okay, excellent. So, uh, briefly, here's what I'll say. If if you know how much we get paid, you realize it's not such an issue. Uh, um, (laughs) It's not that difficult not to get jaded. You get humbled as well. (laughs) Even though I know uh, we all love each other and we have very good audiences and good reactions, so thank you for that. Um, But... When it comes down to the bottom line, um, in my case, I have to raise money. And raising money, God made it very intentionally so that it's difficult. Like the joke they tell the guy, the rabbi that gets into a synagogue and says to the congregation, we have a hole in the roof and we need $100,000. And there's good news and bad news. The good news, we have the money. The bad news, it's in your pockets. So, so please don't see this as an appeal. Um, uh, but uh, the fact is that. So, but, but I still want to answer in a more serious note. I'll say the following, that it is a challenge, but I'll be honest. Uh, we've been, <laughs> I speak for myself, but I'm sure my brother feels similarly. Uh, when you were around the Rebbe, who money was an absolute non-factor. I think he got $80 a week or something like that. I don't even know what he got. But money was not an issue. It suddenly, it rubs off on you. So though... Um, Obviously, we need to pay our bills, and we have families. I'm not ignoring that. I'm responsible. But then the end of the day, it's not what drives me, at least. What drives me is the mission of my life. And knowing the fact that God wants us to have to raise money to pay the bills and to do good things. So when I ask anybody for money, I always say to them, it's really about being able to achieve great things. It's not about enriching anybody. Uh, you know, I've written books, and there are royalties, and people ask, how much do you get from royalties? You have to sell millions of books to begin to even talk about it, just for the record. As far as the second half of the question, maybe I'll defer to my brother, since I don't want to completely monopolize this uh, question, so let him take it away from here. 
Yeah, I do know that when the Rebbe visited the uh, um, the Chabad camp in the Catskill Mountains, Camp Gan Israel, there was a sign on the canteen, money is the root of all evil, leave your evil here. And the Rebbe saw it, and what did he say? He said something, right? Yeah, he said, it's not the root of all evil, so you should change the sign. Yeah. Which was very consistent with the Rebbe, that no physical reality, even if it could be corrupted, is essentially corrupt. The question is how you look at it, how you use it. You build the Beis HaMikdash with money, right? And I think the National Jewish Retreat also cost a couple of dollars. You'll ask Rabbi Mintz. At least they raised money as though it cost a couple of dollars. Uh, the second question was, how do you replenish yourself? I mean, again, I think I could speak for myself. There's two, two, two very important things. Number one is you always have to keep learning and growing yourself. What happens sometimes to speakers and teachers is they repeat what they learned 20 years ago. And basically, they're bored of themselves. So the people may not know it in the beginning, but ultimately, you've heard it and you've heard it all. If a teacher is not consistently challenging himself to greater heights, the material is not fresh, he or she will become jaded. Which is why in my personal life, I try very hard to learn and to teach constantly, including things that are not usable for lectures and speeches. I give a daily Talmud class in the laws of ritual purity and impurity. If I would get up and give a sermon Friday night about it, within 30 seconds, everybody would be snoring. It's complex, it's intricate. But I know for me personally, it challenges me and it stimulates me. And it allows me to go to places and learning of Torah that is not always for speeches and sermons, but it just keeps my soul and my brain alive. And I think that's extremely important. If you stop doing that, then you become a mouthpiece, like a, a lifeless mouthpiece. You both said that Torah is the Torah for all of humanity, correct? Correct. Included in that Torah, the seven Noahide laws that are for everybody. It's obvious to everybody watching any kind of news that the world is desperately needing the voice of Torah. The Me Too movement, all these Jewish guys that are doing all these things. Where is that voice? Why don't I hear that voice in social media everywhere? Like, this is the time, now is the time for that voice to come forward. I have the same question. <laughs> uh, I, I find it actually tragic and sad that um, 3,301 years ago, there was a, uh, a great event called Mountain, Mountain Torah at Sinai that offered us divine blueprint by none other than the creator of life. So it's like having the operator's manual that tells us how to be the healthiest human beings, to build healthiest communities and nations and so on. Addresses every issue. Sometimes you have to dig deeper and look into it. And it's not seen necessarily as that uh, blueprint today. However, the good news is, and I'm sure we've been touched upon in many different lectures throughout this weekend, that... Much of the United States' fundamental principles and many of the world's, including charity and other 
humanitarian uh, values and so on are Torah-based. So a lot of progress has been made if you compare the world today to the world a few hundred years ago and definitely a few thousand years ago. But there's a lot more to be done. And sometimes, to be honest, I, uh, when I present, and sometimes someone says, so what's your mission? In the broadest universal sense, I would say, is to reclaim Sinai as being the first source for direction to all matters in life, as it was back then, and it has become in many different ways. So I think it's our job, all of us here, not just myself and my brother and other teachers, it's our job, wherever we go in our communities and our families and wherever we are, our workplace is to demonstrate. There's a dilemma, you mentioned Me Too, you mentioned other issues. Do we have something to say? And if you don't say anything, then of course the conclusion will be we have nothing to say. It's one of the reasons I wrote Torah Meaningful Life, because people said to me, where are the, where are the books? It's all in Hebrew. So I think we are obligated to have something to say. And if you don't have something to say, call someone up that can help you or direct people to someone that can help. Today, online, you can find a lot of stuff. There's a lot more work to be done, but I can't see it happening without all of us together as partners. It has to be grassroots, where just as I spoke yesterday about Trump, from a Torah perspective, we can talk about Me Too, we could talk about the scandals, we could talk about sexual stuff, we could talk about sports for that matter. And the Torah has something to say on everything, believe it or not. And it's our job to do that. And the more we do it, the more all of us commit to it. It can have a ripple effect. And what do you think Mashiach is? A world filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. Divine knowledge. That's Torah knowledge. Spiritual knowledge. Yes. Keeping the relationship with your child first and foremost when the child doesn't want to be religious or spiritual and I just need to understand though because I have that situation and I naturally kept the relationship but where do you draw the line like sometimes I would not go to shul on Shabbat to spend some time with her but now as she's getting older she's 14 I feel like well that may not be the right thing to do like I have to model for her what where I want to be, and I just need to understand a little bit more about how to try to guide her since she's 14 in the right direction. You're asking a very sensitive and important question. I don't know that there are black and white guidelines when it comes to this issue, but I think the general rule and the general principle that I would say is don't look at it as either or. Either I go to shul to spend time with God, or I waste my time <laughs> trying to hang out with my daughter. Who says that you'll be closer to God in shul than if you're going to spend the time with your daughter? I would say sometimes it's the other way around. If you were thinking of giving that same answer to college-age students, where would you focus? Where would you begin? In other words, a Hasidist-based edu- Hasidist- program for the Shluchim to offer to college students. Directed to me or to my brother either? You want to answer? On Wednesday night, the opening session that I was at, uh, I shared a story about the Rebbe with a uh, young man who was uh, planning to go to college about a circle and a center. Some of you remember that, those were there. 
Actually, every year there's an annual international Chabad on campus uh, conference where you have over a thousand students come to Crown Heights and they hosted by different families and they have events and so on. And my house has become one of the stops at uh, quite a few students. And I always talk to them about that uh, analogy. So frankly, what I said about young children, I would say to college students as well, except in a different language. And that is you're now at a crossroad in your life. You, you don't yet have a job. You're finishing or you're middle of your education. And you're making, going to make big decisions in the next few years. What you're going to do with your life, who you marry, where you're going to live, and so on. So the most single most important thing you should be focusing on is not your knowledge, whatever, whether you're taking medicine or law or accounting or computer science or political science, but rather, why? What will you do with all these tools called knowledge to make this world a better place, to actualize yourself and fulfill your purpose in life? Because you can't have a circle without a center. And just like a business can't function without a mission statement, a human being cannot be effective without a true mission statement, which cannot just be a generic, I want, I'll be a happy person, I'll make money. That's not a mission statement. Every company is supposed to be doing that. How will you uniquely, with your particular skill set and your experience and your opportunities, how will you use that to give and serve the human race? And they're always so intrigued, the college students, by this. They, they, I'm telling you, they, they like gravitate to it. So I see that's what, exactly what would be the message I would uh, offer to uh, that age. Thank you. Thank you both. I wanted to pick up on something another woman said because I had uh, expressed this to my rabbi. In traveling in California one year, we traveled all over and listened to the radio and it occurred to me that, that Chabad should be on the radio. There are so many truckers. There are so many people who are listen to the radio as they make their living. And I used to listen years ago to Car Talk on NPR with Click and Clack, the brothers. You two are a team. I mean, you could easily be picked up by NPR. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> so... I don't know if you've ever thought of it, but I think there's a whole world out there that has a hungry soul, and there are so many people who know so little about Judaism because we are such a small part of the, you know, percentage of the population, and this would be a wonderful outreach tool. Thank you. Thank you for the vote of confidence. Do you work uh, in the, the media? I'll say this. I'll just say this. I'm sure maybe my brother wants to add something. By all means, I mean, I, I frankly feel sometimes spread very thin and, some, and maybe need more focus, but uh, there's no question. Uh, I'm not saying this humbly, but uh, with all the humility that if there was a, a opportunity, I'm sure there are, to be able to reach much larger audiences. And today with technology and the Internet and so on, both of us do podcasts and we do classes and programs, but uh, if anyone has any real practical ideas, I'm sure we'd both be receptive. Theoretically, you're 100% right. The leadership of every Jewish organization should get together with the leadership of every other Jewish organization and make a national, international Jewish retreat with a lot of food for four days and realize the urgency and make resolutions and change the world, Okay. 
you're right. You're 100% right. If you and I wait till that happens, it's going to happen 20 years after Mashiach arrives. So, so the real question is, there's a Jewish child who lives on my block. Why don't I inspire his parents to send him to a Jewish school? That's what you can do, and that's what I can do. We'll change the world. We'll do it one Jew at a time, nonstop. If I wait till everybody comes together, I'll wait forever. I just want to add to that, that something I've thought about a lot over the years, you know, what's the most effective way to get the, your bang for the buck, so to speak, to put in an amount of energy and get the biggest results. And we all begin, when we're younger, more idealistic thinking, you know, let's just go to the institutions and the organizations that are already doing it, educational institutions or outreach institutions or social uh, programs and so on. And then, you know, like everybody goes through three stages. Like there's at one point when you're in high school or you're in college and you say to yourself, hey, you know what, I'm going to change these educational systems. Then you realize that happening so fast. Okay, then comes stage two, I'm going to build my own. You know, then you realize uh, that's not happening either. It's a lot of money. And then basically you reach resignation and say, okay, too bad. You know, that's it. I had good ideas. So I've thought about this a lot, a lot. And I realized it's very difficult to go from the top down for some of the reasons. My brother didn't say the reasons, but I agree with him. It's very difficult because institutions are locked in a certain way, not flexible. And I'm not even criticizing. Maybe they're just stuck or whatever it is. They have their budgets. So grassroots is what I thought is maybe the easiest way because today with technology, you could create a groundswell and a revolution from the bottom up. And at the end of the day, all the institutions need individuals like us because we're the ones that pay tuition and we're the ones that support them. So I thought that maybe, even though it may be more difficult way approach, but it's more realistic grassroots and that will create a transformation that will affect even the institutions and organizations that we have. In 67, when the Temple Mount uh, was in our hands once again, if you had been an advisor to the Prime Minister, what would you have advised him on how to handle that? So about 1967? Yeah. I mean, I have one minute, and I'm going to be very blunt and frank. Uh, the sensitive ones won't mind. I hope you'll forgive me. I believe that Israel made a tragic, historic mistake in 1967, the detrimental results that we are seeing until this very day. The euphoria, the utopia, the utopian euphoric feeling of the great miracles of Israel being tripled, almost quadrupled in six days of seven armies trying to wipe out the people and creating a second Holocaust, defeated in six days, not in five years by Churchill and Roosevelt and Stalin. In six days, by a tiny army, the Jewish world was transformed. For the first time in close to 2,000 years, Jews felt the presence of God, the presence of Israel, what it means for them. The whole Balchuva movement was created at that moment. But there was one group that sadly, and I'm not judging them, they were not ready for it. And that was a major part of the leadership in Israel who so entrenched in a very secular, socialist Weltanschauung, not only did not seize the moment, but went to the opposite. Moshe Dayan, after six hours, 
commanded the army to remove the Israeli flag from the Temple Mount. What message did that give to Nasser? What message did that give to King Hussein? What message did that give to Arafat? What message did that give to the whole Arab world? At the end of the day, the Jews are weak. They don't mean it, and they're not confident in their mission and their position. And the rest are catastrophic results. How how much younger are you? Because, I mean, like, you have the white beard, and you have the gray beard. Finally, finally a relevant question. From the but mouth of babes, like huh? From the mouth yeah. of babes. Wiser. No offense, why? We are exactly... No offense. Okay, no offense. He said, no offense, why, why? Okay. I want you as my therapist. <laughs> We're exactly um, 15 and a half years apart. And you'll have to figure out, as I said at the outset, who's older. <laughs> Something I've been wondering is, you know, what I've learned from this retreat and just from being around Chabad is that you serve God through the minute details of your life. And we're serving this force that is so much more powerful and so outside of the realm of what we're even able to understand. And what I'm confused by is, why is God so jealous about somebody like us that's so insignificant? Wouldn't that be like us obsessing over the behaviors of ants? And if, if God you know, can do anything and can create new universes, why would he care about the meat that we're not eating with milk? Like it just it seems disproportionate. And it almost brings us to this level of we're so important that we're of concern to the all-powerful. And I, and I struggle with that, so I wanted to hear your answer. Yes, good, good question. Very good. Would you be surprised if I told you that probably thousands of pages have been written by Jewish scholars and mystics precisely on this theme? Did you, would you know that? Did you know that? Well, it's a fact. So whatever will be said here is going to be brief, but I would encourage you and everybody, this is exactly what Torah, and especially Hasidus, is about. How do we bridge the infinite and the finite? And I'll just make the question even stronger. It's not just how God cares, but how, what about us? How high can we reach? Can we touch heaven? Can we touch the infinite? Can we touch the eternal? Or are we bound to our mortal parameters? Which so many people keep on trying to tell us, that you, who do you think you are? What can you accomplish? You're one speck accident among seven and a half billion people. So the answer in one unequivocal sentence is this. This God is beyond infinite. And therefore beyond infinite and beyond finite. And when you study the matter, it's a fascinating insight into ideas and to transcendence levels that you, it's hard to imagine even. And this God infused us with something godly. I wanted a partner. There's no jealousy going on here. This is a partnership a partnership between something that's beyond anything that you can even define with the defined human being. And that one sentence in the Torah that God said, I want to create an entity in my image, in the divine image, thousands and thousands of pages. What does that mean? Does the divine even have an image? And how do we connect with it? So I said it's impossible to sum it up, but suffice it to say, 
that each one of us has infinity beating in our hearts. And it's about us to access it. And that's what Jews always knew and always believed in. That's why we were able to transcend all the nonsense. Well, sometimes it was much worse than nonsense. And all the pain and all the suffering. Because we always felt that connection with the eternal. And that when we commit to something that's eternal, in some way we become eternal. Everybody's looking for that fountain of youth. No, it's not in cyrogenic freezing. And it's not in the pharaohs of old. And it's not in uh, Botox. And it's not in all the other type of gimmicks. It's in allowing your soul to dominate your life. And the soul is eternal. The soul is a piece of God in its own way. And can allow us to touch the highest of the high. And allow God, the highest of the high, to touch us in one fusion, one marriage of heaven and earth. So we'll just say a concluding line. Each of us, can we do that? Yeah, we'll wrap up. You want to say? I want to say this, since this will be one of the last sessions, I think I have one more panel after this. I, I want to thank you all personally. It's, uh, to me, I was always trained, I always grew up knowing that uh, the most dignified thing of all is the intersecting of souls, of kindred spirits. And even if we may or have different opinions or come from different backgrounds, the beauty, the harmony within diversity is the ultimate goal, just talking about touching the infinite. We touch the infinite when we love each other, when we transcend our own self-interest and our own boundaries, and we connect. And I want to thank you all for having this, making this connection. Some of us actually met each other, and I, hopefully we could all at least say hello before we each go back to our journeys wherever we are, and hopefully we can bring a taste of this infinity to the finite worlds wherever we will go. So thank you so much. I second that and uh, share with you uh, this final remark. There was a little girl standing at the beach as the tide was retreating. The ocean spit out scores and scores of starfish. The little girl felt bad for the starfish, so she kept on picking up each starfish and throwing it back into the water to give it back its life. And one old cynic goes over to her and says, you foolish little girl. This, this beach stretches for miles and miles. Even if you stand all day, you are accomplishing nothing. You're not making a difference. There are millions and millions and millions of, of starfish being stranded here on the shores. You're doing nothing. You're making no difference. Little girl picks up one starfish. As she throws it into the water, she looks at this old cynic and she says, for this one, I made all the difference. My dear friends, there is one human being for whom you can make all the difference. Use your influence. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.